Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, a conversation with Ivy Kusinga. Join Ivy Kusinga, Chief Culture and Talent Officer for Chubb Insurance, as she joins Jennifer Montoro of Everest Insurance and shares with us her story of overcoming adversity and triumph and what it means to be the Chief Culture and Talent Officer of one of the largest PNC insurers. Ivy and Jen will have a frank and open conversation about racial and gender dynamics, rejecting falsehoods, and the importance DE&I has within an organization's overall culture. And now, here's your host, Jen Montoro. So, hi everyone. My name is Jen Montoro, and today I'm gathered here with Ivy Kasinga of Chubb Insurance. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the important aspects of DE&I, that is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, I have to admit, Ivy, you're my first guest, as I've never hosted a podcast before, so <laughs> bear with me. We'll talk about some of the aspects of DEI, such as rejecting falsehoods and clearing the noise, and how to engage in an open dialogue in the workplace. We're also going to take a look at what it means to be the chief culture and talent officer. Now, before we get started, just to give everyone a little background, I was first introduced to Ivy when I worked for Chubb many years ago. Ivy, you spoke at one of our town halls, and I recall being intrigued by your story. I wanted to learn more, and fortunately for me, I had the opportunity to. You spoke at many other town halls. And since then, I've followed you online, and I have uh, listened to many of your other podcasts and lectures that you've held. And it's really through all of this that I've come to really hold a deep admiration for you. You've overcome so many adversities as a woman, as a Black woman, I'm sure as a mother, um, and yet you still remain balanced and focused on the multitude of complexities that are encapsulated in the DEI space. So with that, before we start talking about diversity in the workplace, I was hoping that you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of your background and talking about where you came from and how that helped to mold the person that you are. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for that very gracious introduction. And actually, when I was looking at some of the notes you sent me, I thought your prep is the most thorough prep I've seen. So <laughs> I do appreciate your support and your interest. So, you know, as Jennifer said, my background, which is what you hear in my accent, is I was born and raised in Uganda. And for the listening audience, that's right in the heart of Africa. So if you think about Kenya and you think about the Congo, Uganda is really smack in the middle of those uh, two countries. And I was raised in the country at a time where Uganda was really experiencing a lot of political, economic and social upheaval. I was probably around nine or 10 years old when we experienced war. And I think most people who remember Ugandan history remember the dictator Idi Amin because that was the war that ousted him. And obviously, as any young person, I think who experiences war, you know, it it it, it seeps very deeply in your experience, in your your psyche. Uganda is far removed from that history, thankfully, is doing so much better as a country economically, politically, and socially. But those were my startings, uh, Jennifer. And 
I think shaped the person that I am. And and I think there are a couple of things I would say about growing up in Uganda or growing up in Africa. And frankly, right now, Jennifer, I consider it quite a gift. I think the gift you get from growing up in any tough environment, you don't even have to grow up African, <laughs> any tough environment, is you focus on what matters most. That is a gift, especially to get that as a young person. So, you know, do you have ample food, water? Do your parents care about you and protect you and love you? I mean, the bare essentials are really what matters the most. And to sort of grasp that at a much more formative point of my development, I think, was very key. The other thing that is a gift from growing up in Africa is, frankly, it's the one thing I really do admire about Africans, but it's not unique to Africans. But I think culturally, I I don't know of a group of people who have the ability to live through difficulty, but still find a lot of joy in life. You know, this sense of togetherness, the sense of enjoyment, the sense of laughter is one that is very striking to me and it stays with me. And it is about being resilient, but you can, sometimes you can be resilient and survive something big, but not come out of the other end as joyful. And I think Africa or Uganda for me is about just really uh, savoring life, savoring joy, enjoying the simple things and and maybe not taking everything a little bit too seriously. Again, quite a gift. And I think the third thing for me was I was very aware of the world or politics as a young person, right? So when you grow up in a country that has a lot of turmoil, you know, it, it awakens your political antenna in a way that nothing else does. And, you know, just out of curiosity, Jennifer, I was always very interested in why the world worked the way it did. Why was my country in war? Why did we have economic challenges? And I have to say that stays with me today. Again, that's quite a gift to get to always remain curious about the world, to understand how the things that happen are connected to your own experiences. So that's a bit of a backdrop about growing up in Uganda and growing up in Africa. I can't imagine. I really can't. But, you know, for those that I do know who who come from similar circumstances, I've always felt there was a sense of community and belongingness and that I envy. I think that's something that is very unique and should be treasured. You shared with me once a story about your brothers and sort of learning your place growing up as the only girl in the family. Can you talk a little bit more about those formative years and and how some of those experiences also helped shape you? Yes. And so, Jennifer, you have such a great memory, right? So (laughs) I I was actually, I'm one of two girls. You know, we we have four siblings all together. I was the youngest, but I was the kind of kid that really enjoyed uh, sticking with my brothers because boys were granted more freedom. You know, they could move in the neighborhood. They didn't have to necessarily get our parents' permission to do just about everything. And girls had many restrictions. And really, if I were to wear my parents' hat, you know, it was out of protection, out of a sense of recognizing that the world around us was much more unkind and 
the, the consequences were more severe for girls than they were for boys. But it, it really did build in me this idea of trying to hang around my brothers because it was my ticket to playing outside. <laughs> if you're a child at any age, playing outside is such a big deal and playing outside with a sense of freedom is such a big deal. Absolutely. And my parents, I think, were comforted by the fact that they, they felt my brothers would look out for me. Mm-hmm. But I think to your point, I was very aware that gender had an implication, even as a very young child. I do remember, because I liked to hang around with my brothers, they would remind me that girls do not do the following things, right? So every time I try to do anything that they perceived as unladylike or unbecoming of a girl, they would remind me. And I also remember my mother and father saying to me several times, like, Ivy, girls don't do that. And the sense of profound unfairness on my young psyche was something I think every girl deals with because you recognize that the world has set you apart because of something as inconsequential, really, to your mind as your gender. And yet you feel capable. I felt very capable as a child, probably beyond my years. And really objected sincerely to those restrictions. So I was probably a handful for my parents. I was a handful for my brothers, but I think my brothers also were very loving towards me. So I had this gift of brothers who were willing to allow me to tag along. I I remember, you know, my father often turning to me at the dinner table or just in any in any situation and saying to me, Ivy, what do you think? And I have to say, Jennifer, that was probably the biggest uh, shaper was this idea that my father expected me to have thoughts. And even if the thinking wasn't as well baked because I was a child, he spoke to me very much as you would speak to an adult. And he would poke the the lack of logic in my thinking he would instruct me on how to think about things and you know I again I think that was also a big shaping influence you know the fact that my father entered discussions with me on just about a variety of topics when those were not topics actually that a lot of women or girls were really encouraged to participate in so again that's such a good memory for me because of course I think parents can be so powerful in their influences and now as a parent myself, and I can now say like, you know, you're actually fortunate if you have parents that are very supportive and really help you develop in the way you think about the world around you. I I could not agree more as a parent myself. That's, That's something that I've tried to incorporate into my parenting with my daughter and we really embrace those tough discussions around the dinner table that I think some might kind of give us that look about. I grew up in a very similar instance and that gender differentiation was really, it was something that my parents really, like they they pointed it out all of the time. In fact, my mother was so conservative that she told us, girls don't play sports. It was so foreign to me because I had friends that played sports and I wanted to play sports, but I wasn't allowed to play sports. Girls played 
instruments and girls danced and girls did, you know, all of these other things, but they weren't allowed to play sports. So when my daughter came to me and said, mommy, I want to learn to play soccer. I was right there on the field. I joined the board. I was painting the lines. I was doing, you know, everything that I would have wanted and more um, just to make sure that she felt that she was supported and encouraged that's terrific that's terrific yeah. I, you know unlike you i mean i'm i was also i am raising daughters even though they are now grown but but i think it does bear reflection that we all parent influenced by the the way we were parented right so whether it's in objection to how you were parented or in support of how you were parented but i can assure you that i was very much clear that I was not going to set any kind of gender limitations on my children. They would not hear those words out of me that girls cannot do something, right? And I don't think I'm necessarily radical on the subject. Like I just felt I wanted them to feel empowered. I wanted them to feel supported. I wanted them to feel the freedom to navigate as long as, of course, still keeping them safe, but the freedom to navigate. And again, those were to me, those were areas in which I had struggles as a young girl growing up in that in the environment that I did. And and they're not too dissimilar to you, though we grew up in very different countries. Yes, yes. Let's talk about racial dynamics and how they helped structure and, and sort of shape you. What was it like? You you had once talked about going to school in England and how that was sort of a shock for you. Yes. No, I mean, look, like, I think it is the case that in most African countries, Africans are the dominant factor, right? Just like in America, Americans are the dominant factor. So I grew up in a country where the doctors were Ugandan, the lawyers were Ugandan, the thieves were Ugandan, the cops were Ugandan, you know, the villains and the heroes were all black. So I never attributed race to any character trait. We were not raised in that way. And I think that's also another tremendous confidence boost of growing up in a, a country where you're, you're the dominant factor. You're the norm. You're the point of reference, right? But having said that, we were very aware of apartheid in South Africa. So most of us by high school days, we're very much aware that South Africa was blowing up and Nelson Mandela was in jail. And, you know, we were very aware politically that the system of apartheid was being imposed on black people in South Africa. So race as a implication was something you have an understanding of at a distance, but you didn't have an experience of. Many African countries have Indians, they have Chinese people, they have white Caucasians come to Africa. We would colonized by the British. That's the, that's the history of most African countries, especially in East Africa. So the presence of whiteness and Asians and other kinds of races is a reality of life. It's not like you haven't bumped into people who don't look like you. And the first time I left Uganda and I was on scholarship as a student in the UK, I think was the first time I really experienced what race means in life. And I think the, the story I may have relayed to you, Jennifer, is I, I was uh, signing up for immigration entry into the UK. And, you know, you get those standard forms where race is 
it's a categorized area where you have to say your name and then your race. And that's the first time I had ever filled in race, right? But I do remember thinking about it, right? There were all these boxes, white, other, black and this. And and I just thought, wow, like they really are categorizing people here. So that was, again, it was a fleeting thought, but certainly something I was contemplating. And then when we were walking through immigration, and many of you will know this if you're traveling internationally and you're back into the UK, or most European countries will have a lane for EU holding passports or UK holding passports, and then they will say others. And so as you're coming from any major airline, you're all a mix, you're a potpourri of the world population. And then immediately you see this separation of worlds. All the whiter, huge people are moving in one lane and then all the brown and black people are moving in another. That stayed with me. I can imagine. And of course, the black and brown line is not moving, right? Because the restrictions you have to go through to legitimize your presence in in their country and the checks and the balances that they have are far more steep. But in that line, and subsequently, every immigration experience is a reminder of the segregated nature of the world that we live in. Yeah. And the segregated experiences. So that that stays with, as long as you carry a passport from a country that is undesirable, you have that experience. And I think for, for your listening audience, you will have people who've never even experienced that, so they just don't even know what that means. But if you talk to anybody who has to constantly get visas to travel, that experience is a constant reminder of otherness, mm. not belonging, of being treated disparately. And sometimes for maybe valid reasons, but for the most time, not valid reasons. And the reason you know this is as soon as you get a U.S. passport, you're still the same person. But suddenly the treatment is very different because you're now legitimized as a U.S. citizen. It is an interesting disparity and not something that I would have really thought about before because I've been privileged and I've, I've not encountered that situation. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. So you mentioned that you went to school in England. What was that like for you? You know, it was a big culture shock, to be honest, Jennifer. Like, I was definitely a more studious type of young person, and so were all the other people who were attending the same college that I was attending. It was actually an international college, so we were very fortunate. We had been selected to represent our countries, so it was a very privileged experience. But it it was also difficult in the standpoint that I had to quickly learn about different countries, different cultures. So it was very enriching because you were speaking to people from their own cultural lens, trying to understand life from the perspective of an Iranian. You're trying to understand life from the perspective of somebody from Brazil, somebody from Belgium, right? We had some commonalities. We were all young. We were all bright. We were all curious and hungry to to sort of improve the world we had inherited but we had so many differences culturally so big big turning point I think in my life because it made me understand that narrative is very important you know people don't know you until they know your story 
I was very shocked to find out that most people could not even place Uganda on a map. I remember most most of my colleagues would say, what's the capital city of Africa? And I'd be like, no, Africa is a continent. It's not a country. I was so offended that they thought it was a country. But from their lens, right, Jennifer, like that's the issue. Like from your lens, that's how all of us see the world. So in Africa or Uganda at that time, we spent so much time studying about Europe, right? So if you bump into most Africans, they are very well studied in European history. We know your heroes. We know your villains. We know the world wars. I mean, I knew so much more about Europeans than they knew about me. And I found that very shocking. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. Like, how do you not know anything about my country when I know so much about yours? But that's the system of colonization, right? That's the system that the Brits, in this case, put in place is you colonize people so that you center their history in your history. You're not centered in their history. True. So there's a power dynamic. And again, I was too young to try to still decipher that, right? All I knew is most people do not know where I'm from. So I have to explain to people where I'm from. But overall, a hugely enriching experience, a very positive experience. I mean, I, I, I was in my head a lot because I think I was rethinking a lot of things, Jennifer, right? So I was rethinking my religion, right? I was raised to be a devout Catholic and, you know, then I... I went to school with people who were atheists or Muslims or Hindu. I I mean, I just thought, okay, why do we all have different faiths? So I was rethinking a lot of major value systems that I had automatically inherited by virtue of my birth. And, And so, you know, I propelled forward with that sort of background because of that experience. That's interesting. And it's so fascinating. And my daughter being a college student now, I see her reflecting a lot on asking a lot of those same questions. So it's, it's interesting to sort of see those same topics come to light through her eyes. So how do you think taking all of those experiences, where did you go from there? You know, can you talk about some of your, your past jobs and sort of the challenges and the adversities that maybe you were faced with as a young woman from Uganda yeah, so I mean, I think if I could sort of like a quick trajectory, I went from school in the UK, I went to school in Canada, finished my further education in Canada, moved to Bermuda because my college boyfriend was from Bermuda. So really entered the workforce in Bermuda. And I was a little bit teased away from my career interests. So I had studied international development. I was very much keen on women's studies as well. And I thought in those days, Jennifer, that I would end up maybe working for like the IMF or the United Nations. I thought that that would be my trajectory. And then I find myself pretty much in, in an island like Bermuda that really didn't have those points of emphasis. But what was available to me was financial services or you could do retail. And I was practical enough to simply just get a job and to start my work life there. And, you know, as a young professional, I I still, I knew I was bright enough to grasp anything that was in front of me. I was still searching for what would be the right path for me. I was very, very fortunate to always have, I think, some supportive managers to encourage my development and my, my learning. 
And I think especially when I did my stint with HSBC, you know, I, I, I really did have the fortune of a, a very good manager who said, look, you you have a very particular way of writing. You're, you're very good in getting people to understand ideas. Like you should probably consider learning and development as a field. And, and of course, what I loved about that is just the learning process. That has always been, I think, a character in my work is I, I often gravitate to things because I have to learn them. And I would say joining ACE at the time in Bermuda was a very enriching time in my career experience. The, Bermuda still is very racially diverse, much more gender balanced, I think, in, in organizations, probably not at the top, but you know, rank and file for sure. I don't think I experienced a lot of challenges at that stage in my career that I would say were setbacks. If anything, I thought I was promoted very quickly. I grew very quickly until I arrived in the U.S. And so the U.S. operation, you know, insurance is still a very conservative business. So somebody like myself is still very much an aberration. I knew I had to almost start again, ingrain myself in the business, ingrain myself with my my peers and my colleagues. And I think the challenges are not unique to me, Jennifer. I think, you know, you're a young professional woman, you know, I, I was still kind of young when I came to the US and I had children in tow. So I was trying to balance all the, the challenges of raising a family while working. But I think I was aware that I needed more than my pure merit to move ahead. I think that was clear to me. Like merit will only get you so far. And then uh-huh. you've got to be really savvy to make sure you have the right level of exposure, the right level of support. And all those things are intentional choices. You know, you've got to make those choices. You've got to push into them. I, I never necessarily resented the fact that maybe my path was difficult. I, I, I don't know, Jennifer, sometimes you probably don't know enough about your circumstance to even feel discouraged by it, right? I just felt I needed to push much harder and I was always willing to. It's probably partly innate. Uh, I've always been somebody who drives hard in terms of <laughs> I'm very determined and I think it's only probably at the later part now in my career where I can think, oh, that was such that was such a struggle. <laughs> that was so hard to to get through that. But as I'm in it, it just felt like work. It, it just felt like this is what I have to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. You know, I did not complete college and do not have a degree. So, and I was a young mother, and so I I feel like. In the moment, I knew that I had some challenges that I needed to work through, that I needed to maybe assert myself and push myself that much harder to prove things that maybe others didn't have to because they had that degree or because they didn't have a, a child to go home to at the end of the day. But but that was in the moment, and that's what I did. I didn't really know any other way. It's It was just a part of who I was. It was part of my construct. Looking back. You know, I I can be proud of myself and I can recognize the effort that I put forth and, you know, some of the things that I'd put aside personally or professionally as a result of the choices that I made. Yeah, 
I agree. As you sort of age and you progress through your career and you look back and you, you notice these things, but when you are in the moment, you don't necessarily always. It's so true. And I think it was Steve Jobs who says, it's hard to connect the dots looking forward. You have to connect the dots looking back, right? So I can connect the dot from Uganda, Uganda to the UK, UK to Canada, Canada to Bermuda, Bermuda to the US. Now those dots are like, ah, okay, that's where that comes from. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I think you're absolutely right, Jennifer. I can now see where my aptitude, my skill, my development, how it's been shaped, what ushered it, what really catalyzed it, right? It, it becomes clearer because you kind of have the perspective to look back and make the connections. But completely relate to that. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, let's fast forward. Look at you now. You are the chief culture and talent officer at one of the largest PNC insurers in the world. And I'm sure that comes with an insane level of accountability. Can you talk to us about what that means, what your role entails, and how that might differ from, say, a chief diversity officer? Because I think some of us may be more accustomed to hearing that title, not necessarily knowing of what a culture officer does. And what what's the difference between the two? So I think, first of all, it's a great question and more than happy to answer it, right? So I think you can probably think of culture as the operating environment of any company. It touches on how you make decisions. It touches on the behavior expectations you have of each other as colleagues. It touches on the things you're willing to reward and recognize, right? It's the pervasive environment, spoken or unspoken, written or unwritten, right? And when you sign up for any company, that's the environment you're signing up for. So if you're working for Comcast, you're signing up for the Comcast culture. If you're signing up for Apple, you're signing up for the Apple culture. If you're signing up for Chubb, you're signing up for the Chubb culture, right? So one of the things I really appreciate about how Chubb focuses on culture is it puts a very prime focus on that environment. And Evan Greenberg, who is our CEO, has often felt it's critical enough to the business focus and strategy and outcomes that you need a front steward for your culture. And so that's really how we look at it at Chubb is Right now, I am the front steward, but but it's a shared responsibility, to be honest, Jennifer, right? Because nobody owns culture it, 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 with, with a singularity, right? It's owned by leaders. It's owned by everybody. You, we all shape culture by our day-to-day experiences, by our reactions. And so I think it differs from a chief diversity officer position because the chief diversity position is really integral to culture at Chubb. So Think of diversity and inclusion efforts would be just a part of our culture, but it's not the whole part of the culture, right? It's just integral to the culture. It's a principle of operation that we will be an inclusive meritocracy. We will be a kind of culture that allows for the expression of differences and we, we leverage those differences to better business outcomes, right? But culture also focuses on employee engagement. You just want everybody to feel like they are valued, they have a sense of agency, they have a sense of contribution and empowerment regardless of who they are. That's employee engagement, right? 
culture is also about your talent systems, right? What do you do to attract people into your company? What do you do to promote them, to reward them, and uh, to make sure that you have parity in your processes? So the piece that I think is very unique to the Chubb construct is that we look at culture and the talent intersection pieces. We recognize the importance, like one informs the other, right? And, and again, the diversity, equity, and inclusion work is really just a core part of what, of what we all do as, as those of us that are leaders. But it is a fascinating job because you are dealing with a multitude of subjects on any given day. You could be dealing with an issue that is about ethics or compliance-related issues, but you could be dealing with a client-facing request uh, a client trying to understand what are we doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right now, we are trying to do work for International Women's Day. That's what we're focused on. We we have a big focus on racial diversity, gender diversity. And the dot I'm connecting now back to my background, when I told you I, I was studying international development studies, it's multidisciplinary, right? You're often dealing with a variety of subjects and facing off to the business in a way that has dimension. So I I just think it's a role of a lifetime, to be honest. And I've been so privileged and honored to have had a stint in this particular role. I think that's wonderful. I've always found it interesting. Diversity, I think, is something that many companies measure anymore, right? And, and in the current political climate, I think it's sort of, you know, one of the hot topics, if you will, right? Everyone's talking about diversity and what it means to be a diverse workplace. Culture, on the other hand, is not something that I personally feel you can measure because I think it's evolving. It's ever-changing. And and so I can imagine you don't have a dull day ever. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. I will say, I, I do think culture is becoming far more topical because of the global pandemic. Because if you think about the major disruption of the workplace in terms of, you know, we have this virus and variants of it that have forced organizations to work remotely or hybrid. And it's really disrupted the way we think about work, our relationship to work, how we want to work. These are huge cultural issues for companies, right? So if you were never a believer in, in a focus on culture, I think you're going to quickly become a believer in the focus on culture because you have to understand that the way people are rethinking work is going to have implications. And so I honestly do think, Jennifer, we are probably going to see far more of a focus. I think it's always assumed as an area that is so attached to maybe human resources or maybe leadership that people don't feel like the need to pull it out. But I think Evan's vision of, of putting a marker around culture was visionary, very well informed, and has served the company extremely well. Now, that's not to say we have any unique advantage because of all the COVID-related disruptions, but it's to say you recognize that it is a mechanism by which you're, you're having to respond to what's going on around you. But I think COVID is a game changer as far as I see it. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you you mentioned that because I don't think I would have previously thought of that as being a part of the culture, right? When I think of culture and diversity, and and again, maybe this is circling back to my ignorance, I think of things like gender inequities, racial differences. I think of economic disparities and, and differences in faith. And I don't necessarily think of things like the working environment as a whole, you know, are you in the office? Are you at home? Are you conducting sort of a hybrid schedule? And what does that look like? And, and how does that impact the employee? So, so to me, like, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's a perspective that I think a lot of people would share, Jennifer, but, but mm-hmm. I do think to me, culture is about how you work. It really is about the how you're working around the organization that you're in. And the how you work is about decisions you're making, your interactions as colleagues. So, so that piece to me, it's hard to quantify, but at the same time, it really does have some very hard measures because you have practices and systems that support how you work. Right, right. And maybe they've never been they've never been assessed, right? It's so assumed in how you operate that you're not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But there's an absolute ethos around how you work. COVID is bringing that to the forefront. What COVID did was to say, I am going to turn a mirror on how you work, right? And so you'll have people discussing, is this too much, too little? Is it, what's the right mix for us? Employees. I think are beginning to have what I call a flight to quality, right? I think people are saying, you know what? I kind of love my company, but I love my family, actually. And I don't want to feel the conflict between the two. Yeah. I think that's the piece where the way you work culture becomes really part of the core discourse around these issues. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is additive to that because we know that COVID has sat on women very differently than it sits on men, right? We know that a lot of women are still in a situation where they are having to coach and tutor kids underneath a table at their home, right? That that sits on you very differently. That's how you're working. Uh So the issues cannot be uncommingled in the way that we're thinking anymore. Like to me, it is very integral. So culture, again, remains this, pervasive environment, but the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion are very much intersected into the culture and how you work. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I know you have a very busy schedule. Thank you so much for the conversation, Jennifer, and thank you very much for having me. Yes. Yes. We're very fortunate. So thank you again. Bye-bye.